This is the word of the Lord from Amos chapters 1 and 2. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Haziel that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son, use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below, and I brought you up out of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel? declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you. As a cart crushes when loaded with grain, the swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Megan. Pray with me, would you? God, open our eyes, open our hearts, help us receive what you have for us today from your word. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we are in the second uh, week of our Lenten series. It's a six-week series in the book of Amos, uh, one of the minor prophets, one you might not have spent much time in previously. 
So last year or last week was a bit of a setup uh, to the series, kind of giving the backstory and the and the context for this book. The big theme of Amos is the universal justice of God, and 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 really the. Uh, today is about the basis of accountability by which God can hold everyone everywhere accountable to, to his standards of justice. And in the passage you just heard, Amos delivers to Israel uh, charges of injustice against the nations surrounding Israel and then against Israel herself. And we, we didn't read all of them, but I would encourage you to go back um, maybe today, maybe sometime later to read all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. Because all of chapter 1 is, uh, after a brief introduction, the charges against the nations surrounding Israel, that that goes into the beginning of chapter 2 a little bit as well. And I'd encourage you to read them slowly, not just to get through them, but to read them for understanding and to really think about the charges being levied against the nations and against Judah and Israel. I mean, if, if the theme of... Amos is the universal justice of God. The surprise of Amos is that judgment for injustice would fall upon Israel too. And and Amos, through God's direction, makes that turn in the text we read today. In, In fact, Israel learned that rather than enjoying favored status with God, they would be held more accountable than the nations around them for they had received greater revelation from God. And they and they lived in a in a whole life bond with God called a covenant and that brought judgment upon them from God because they were held to a higher standard. So this this series is about biblical justice and today we're thinking about the foundation of justice and what I what I mean by that is the theological foundation of biblical justice. Or if you were to ask the question, what what are the biblical cornerstones? Of justice. I mean, how, how does the Bible conceive of justice? And theologically speaking, why should Christians be concerned about issues of social justice? I mean, aren't those just social issues and rather unrelated to the spiritual gospel? I mean, sure, we want to help people, but aren't, aren't these social issues separate from what we believe about God and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Well, through the prophet Amos, God says pretty clearly that his chosen redemptive community, Israel back then, the church today, is to be a community of justice, especially among themselves and on behalf of the world. So we dive in. Before Crystal and I uh, got married, she lived in Washington, D.C., and I I dragged her away from an incredible church in, in uh, DC, uh, the senior pastor of whom is a guy named Glenn Hoberg. And um, uh, Crystal and I have a great deal of respect for Pastor Glenn. And he, in a sermon not long ago, shared a few things that are good for us to keep in mind as we think about biblical justice. And they were so good, I'd like to share them with you. I'm indebted to Pastor Glenn for these. Three things to keep in mind as we dive in. First, there's a relationship between personal experience and understanding of injustice. This reality is captured in that old saying, you know, where where you stand depends on where you sit. Meaning our thoughts and convictions about things are, are shaped by our perspective. And our perspective is largely shaped by our personal experience. 
And we have a prime example of this in the current cultural moment with regard to racial equity and, and justice. I mean, for years, the black community in America, including the black church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, has been saying there's a justice problem in our country with regard to police bias and police brutality. But most of the country, including most of the white evangelical church, has not seen this as a pressing problem needing immediate attention. At least that was the case until May 25th of last year. And that was the day that George Floyd died with the knee of a Minneapolis police officer on his neck. And it was all caught on video. And, and since then, says commentator David Brooks, white people in our country have been learning more about the experience of black people in our country than ever before in our country's history. Why? And what made this different? I think a big part of it, it was, it was caught on video. And, and it, largely, it became a shared experience in the country. Now, I'm talking holistically now, not every single individual. But we as a country witnessed an injustice that could not be denied. It was right there. And that experience changed our perspective on injustice. And a lot has happened since then. But, but the bigger point is this. There's a relationship between personal experience and our understanding of injustice because of our, our perspective. And, and the scripture tells us very clearly it's wise to consider a variety of perspectives. Right? This comes straight from the Proverbs. Look at these. Without guidance, a nation fails, but many good advisors bring victory to a nation. Plans fail without good advice, but they succeed when there are many advisors. If you go to war, you surely need guidance. If you want to win, you need many good advisors. You know, I, I, I uh, came from the business world and have a degree in organizational behavior, and one of the uh, kind of long-standing books in that field is a, a book by Katzenbach and Smith called The Wisdom of Teams. And it's all about this idea that You know, every, every once in a while, maybe especially in a crisis, you need a highly competent, highly directive leader who says, now we are going to do this. But outside of that situation, by and large, effective teams of people make better decisions than individuals left to themselves. And the reason that's true is because there's a multitude of perspectives. Because when we talk, my idea gets better when you give me feedback and you give me your perspective. Right? So, so experience and understanding of injustice go together, and we would be wise to listen to different perspectives. Right? We do well to remember that. Second, we do well to remember that as Christians, our understanding of justice should be shaped by Scripture, not by the world or partisan divide. As we'll see here in a minute, Amos levies all sorts of charges against the nations, including Judah and Israel, the people of God. And by today's standards, some of those charges would fit a conservative platform, and some of those charges would fit a liberal platform. Or more directly, 
if I stand up here and preach about the sanctity of life or a traditional view of marriage, those are largely considered conservative issues, and I might be labeled by some as a conservative. If I preach on systemic racism or efforts toward economic equity or wage theft, those are considered liberal issues, largely, and I might be labeled by some as a liberal. But I would argue with anyone, anytime, that those things are not simply conservative or liberal, they're biblical. And our concept of justice needs to be larger than the world's categories. And that's the point. As Christians, worldly categories cannot be our primary categories for understanding biblical justice. The Bible needs to come first, right? We are reformed, after all. Reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. Not worldly categories or anything else we might put in there. So our understanding of justice biblically now should be shaped by scripture, not by the world or or partisan divide. Otherwise, we might find ourselves calling some issue or the other ungodly when it is, in fact, something God is very concerned about and has addressed directly in scripture. And we don't want to be in that place. And finally, as we consider biblical justice, we do well to remember Uh, kind of the connection between the church and the state. And, And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. summed this up, I think, very well. The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state. It's not it's not an either or, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. The church is to be the conscience of the state. Now, I'm not, under, I'm not unpacking all these things biblically for you, but I could. I think that's a very biblical stance, that the church should be the conscience of the state. Now, of course, we have separation of church and state in our country, and I think that's a good thing, but it was never conceived to cause us to somehow imagine our way into a world where these two entities live completely separate lives and never dialogue with one another. We all live in the same world. So the question really becomes, what, what do we, how do we as a church engage the state? I mean, rather than being wedged into worldly categories, the church addresses the state based on the authority of scripture. And that's exactly what we see Amos doing. He brings a message from God to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to the whole country. And so so often I've witnessed the church being wedged into worldly categories. And and when that happens, from that perspective, then the very next part of the conversation becomes this. It, It turns to what is acceptable or unacceptable to be political about. Right? And, and you get into this, this mindset of, well, it's okay to, to engage that. And by be political, it means for the church to engage the state in some formal kind of way, right? Uh, to say, hey, this isn't right. Something needs to change. And you know what? We would, be, uh, we would be happy to help in the forging of some constructive solutions here. And when, when, when is that appropriate and when is it not appropriate? And again, if we're being honest, right, largely, again, in the white evangelical church, it's been acceptable to be political about abortion and a traditional view of marriage, 
but unacceptable to be political about things like immigration reform or criminal justice reform or police bias or housing discrimination. Those things would not be acceptable to be political about. So I've probably offended you somewhere, uh, but I think we can all be thankful that the scripture is an equal opportunity offender. And, and we do well to remember these things. We're thinking about biblical justice here. Now, to get to biblical justice, you have to look at what the Bible actually says. So let's do that in chapters 1 and 2 of Amos. Again, we didn't read all of chapter 1 this morning, but in the first part uh, of, of chapter 1 and first part of chapter 2, God addresses the nations surrounding Israel. Here's what the map looked like in Amos's day. You can see Israel right in the middle there. Uh, Syria is north and east, and there's Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, and then the, the great port city of Tyre is up, the, up north on the Mediterranean coast there. That, that country isn't named. That's Phoenicia up, up in that area. And in turn, Amos calls out each nation for their injustices. So I'm just going to give you a quick summary of those. Uh, and, and thanks to T.J. Betts in his excellent commentary on Amos for these summary statements of what the nations are called out for. Uh, Syria called Damascus in the, uh, in the text we read. Damascus, of course, is the capital of Syria. Called out for treating people as if they have no worth because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. That's what happened. So the situation there was that in the ancient world, one technique for separating uh, the kernels from the hull in grain was to rake all of your grain into a big pile and then to drive your ox across it with a big, heavy wooden sledge, and the sledge would crush the grain, separating the hull from the kernel, and then you could harvest your grain. The reference to iron here is a reference to military might. So back then, iron was the latest thing and represented military strength. So that idea of they threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth means that Syria used their military might not just to defeat Gilead, but to grind the people of Gilead into the ground with complete disregard for human life. God saw this as the great injustice it was. Philistia, called out by its great city Gaza, called out for using people for profit because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. Now, we're not exactly sure of the specific situation here, but the injustice being referenced is clear. When one army conquered another army, it was commonplace for the victors to enslave the men of the defeated army and to sell them into slavery. But what happened here, what Philistia did, is they took the entire civilian population captive and sold everybody, man, woman, and child, just to make a buck. They used people for profit, and God saw this as the great injustice it was. Phoenicia called out for breaking your word to a brother in order to use him for profit. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. So it's the same sin as Philistia, selling the entire civil, uh, uh, civilian population into slavery, but this one had a twist. This was done in disregard of a treaty. Phoenicia had given their word, and they had broken their word in the context of a deep 
relational commitment. God saw this as the great injustice it was. Edom called out for unrestrained hatred and spite toward a brother because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. This goes back to the relationship between Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Jacob became Israel. The descendants of Esau became Edom. There was a long, harsh history between these two. Edom perpetuated atrocities against Israel, showing hate and spite for brother Israel. And more than that, Edom's was the injustice of, quote, hatred nourished in the heart, to use a phrase from Alec Motier meaning anger raged continually in here. Fury flamed unchecked. And God saw this as the great injustice that it was. Ammon called out for ambition and uncontrolled violence against the helpless because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. And as with Edom, the Israelites were distant relatives of the Ammonites. The Ammonites were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And there was a long history of conflict between Ammon and Israel. Ammon was a little tiny land. And this is about a time when Ammon adopted the military practices of the most brutal and horrific regimes of the ancient Near East. The slaughter of pregnant women and their yet-to-be-born children for the purpose of instilling terror in the population. Because a pregnant woman about to give birth was kind of the billboard of vulnerability, conceived as uh, the one most worthy of extending mercy to. And yet in this military practice of slaughtering the most vulnerable purposefully to instill terror, I mean, uncontrolled violence against the helpless, God saw this as the great injustice it was. Moab called out for showing contempt for others because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. The Moabs were distant relatives of Israel too, also through Lot. So they were related to the Edomites as well. Somehow they acquired the bones of a deceased king of Edom and burned the bones to ashes, a tremendous disgrace in that culture. The Moabites used the bones of that king like they would use lime in the making of plaster for their walls. And the message was very clear. The worth of an Edomite is the same as the lime we use to whitewash our walls. God saw this as the great injustice it was. Judah, finally, the other nations around Israel, called out for unfaithfulness to God and his word because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Now, at first sight, this might seem a little bit less brutal than all the other things named. I mean, the slaughtering of pregnant women and, and their children. You might ask, isn't this just a spiritual failure? You know, not responding to God's word. And this, this will largely be the point of next week's message. So we'll do this more next week. But, but this represents a whole new level of failure. All the other nations failed to respond to general revelation to the clear call of conscience to value other human beings and to behave accordingly. They failed in that regard miserably. But Judah failed to respond to specific revelation. They had received even more, and to whom much is given, much is expected. I mean, theirs was the covenant and the prophets and the law. And they didn't respond. 
So if you read all of chapter 1, this is what you get. I mean, it's not pretty. Amos is just lambasting the nations surrounding Israel. And remember, he's doing all of this in Israel. He went to Israel to deliver this message, not to all of the different nations one at a time to deliver their bit to them individually. He was preaching this message in Israel. He was speaking to all the Israelites. And remember the backstory: Israel is in a time of materialistic prosperity like none other. They understood this to be the blessing of God upon them and their, at that time, state-tainted religion centered on that theme. Look how great we are. God is blessing us. We have all this money. We're doing so great. Aren't things wonderful? They thought they were the apple of God's eye. So when Amos turned his sights on them and absolutely unloaded on them, it was to their utter amazement and shock. Up to that point, you could just hear them. They're preaching, Amos, come on, let them have it. Yeah, come on. But then, and this is the middle part of chapter 2. Amos tells them that they were filled with greed. They sold the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, flip-flops. They were full of pride. They trampled the head of the poor and turned aside from the way of the afflicted. They built a national culture that pushed poor people down and kept them there. And then the poor were treated with disdain and exploited through obvious injustices. That's what was going on in the country. They were guilty of, of immorality. A man and his wife go into the same girl, meaning both father and son in a household had sex with the young female house servant. In, in, in all of this, they were simply imitating all of the nations who had oppressed them in the past. Writes one commentator, a nation that has a long history of oppression at the hands of other nations has become entrenched in oppressive behavior toward its own people. This wasn't just toward outsiders. The Israelites now were oppressing themselves. The community of justice had failed even internally. I mean, these, these are the charges of injustice that God speaks to Israel through Amos. And in them we see the theological foundation of biblical justice. In them we see the answer to the question, why should Christians be concerned about social justice? And the basis of accountability. I mean, there really are, are two theological cornerstones of biblical justice. First, human beings are created in the image of God. And two, God's law is written on our hearts. L look at this again from Romans 2. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. See, our, our conscience is given to us by God. And and it is a primary way God communicates with us and is part of the image of God we bear. Conscience is a God-given faculty, says one commentator. 
Now, now because God's law is written on our hearts, and this isn't just Christians, this wasn't just Israel back then, this is every human being everywhere, general revelation now. Because God's law is written on the heart of every human being, every human being is accountable to God for right moral choices with regard to how we treat fellow human beings. And all the charges listed by Amos represented gross violations of conscience which devalued other human beings and in some way used them for the purpose of self-advancement. But, but God's justice is universal. It applies to every person everywhere. Look at Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Truth of conscience, truth that every human being is created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect for that reason alone. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. It's written right here. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Back to the Psalm 19 thing of earlier in the service, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. What may be known about God has been made plain to us in a general sense. So, if any of us are ever tempted internally to play that most common card of human excuse that feels like this, Wait, wait, what? I didn't, I, I, what did I do, huh? We might like to think that that works, but let's be crystal clear, that does not work with God. If you choose to brutalize and mistreat another human being, there is no excuse you know better because it's written in here. If you find yourself in a place of valuing things more than people and using people to get more things, there's no excuse. You know better. It's written in here. If you find yourself violating your word which you have pledged in relational obligation to others and you know it's the right thing to do to follow up on what you promised but you don't, there's no excuse. You know better, it's written in here. And I'm not just pointing it out there, right? It's, right? it's right here. I know better. I know better. Because it's written right here. Human beings bear the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect and justice for that reason alone. They don't do they don't need to do anything more than that. They don't need to do anything special. I'm not saying like we don't address crime and all that. I'm not, I'm not going there. Simply saying every human being everywhere is worthy of dignity and respect because they bear the image of God. And we all know this because God has written it on our hearts. 
This is the foundation of biblical justice. God's law is written on our hearts and that law testifies to the unique value of every human being. Anything that violates the unique value of a human being is injustice in God's eyes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. God, we love you. We thank you for sending Jesus and for pouring out your spirit in us. Uh, And would you, Holy Spirit, take the words that I've spoken today and refine them? Kind of like removing the kernel from the, the hull. Would you sort and sift and anything that is from you, God. Uh, Repeat and amplify in our hearts and spirits. And anything that's not, uh, allow it to blow away in the wind. But tune our ears to you, Lord Jesus. Uh, We pray in your name. Amen.